Hello and welcome to Room 106. I'm John Gagan from Planning Magazine. Unfortunately, my editor Richard Garlick is not with us today to join me in Room 106, the world of pain into which all new planning information is upended. But I am being ably assisted by several of my planning colleagues. As ever, we are entering Room 106 to extract the key things that planning professionals need to know about. This is the first episode of 2024, so Happy New Year to all our listeners. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. It's been over a month since our last episode, so there's a lot to sift through, including the small matter of a new national planning policy framework. In fact, we are going to devote today's show almost entirely to the new MPPF and the key takeaways from it, as well as a series of accompanying announcements from the government on changes to the planning system. By the end of the show, you should be able to hold your own with confidence if you're being quizzed on the new MPPF by a colleague or client. There's been a huge amount of interest from our readers on the new MPPF, unsurprisingly, reflecting the significance of it for the planning and development sectors. So I'm enlisting help from three colleagues who should already be ahead of me in Room 106, where they've been poring over the blizzard of pre-Christmas announcements. So for the first time this year, I'm going to take the plunge into Room 106. Wish me luck. So, now I'm inside. Wow, it's absolutely packed full of paperwork, including the new MPPF. And here are some of my colleagues, already in here. I'm just trying to recognise them in the gloom. Ah, here's our special correspondent, Joey Gardner. Hello, Joey. Hello, John. And here's Alex King, our reporter. Hello, Alex. Hi, John. And finally, here's our online editor, Toby Porter. Hello, Toby. Hello. Right, lovely to see you all. We've got lots of ground to cover today. Joey, I'll turn to you first. You've been looking in detail at the new MPPF document and the changes compared to both the old version and the version that was consulted on in December 2022. So we're going to cover the revisions relating to meeting housing needs, housing land supply, local plan examinations and some of the other key changes. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. So let's kick off by talking about the changes relating to local housing need, which it's fair to say has grabbed the most headlines in the past year after the government proposed weakening the requirement for councils to meet centrally set local housing need figures. Joey, what changes are in store in terms of how councils need to calculate their local housing requirements when drawing up their plans. There are a number of key changes compared to the consultation draft, aren't there? Yes, indeed, John. Yes, we've got some significant changes in store, really, and uh, not just to the pre-existing system, but significant changes to what was proposed in the uh, MPPF consultation draft just over a year ago, including around the impact of density on local area character and on the way that housing need is calculated. So the new MPPF that we now have has dropped suggested changes to paragraph 11, which is kind of right at the heart of the MPPF, which would have meant that the need to avoid, quote, uncharacteristically dense 
development would have outweighed the requirement to meet local housing need. So instead, the government has inserted a new paragraph much later in the MPPF, which sets out a somewhat vaguer objective to protect the character of local areas. This proposal is seen as much uh, less far-reaching and applies to plan making only, and any resulting policies have to be evidenced by local design codes. Another change from the draft consulted on has seen the government drop plans to allow councils to be able to take past over delivery of housing into account when assessing housing need as part of plan making. Consultation had suggested that authorities where the number of granted permissions had exceeded the provision made in the plan might be able to deduct that surplus from what needed to be provided in in future. But that's been dropped because they just got little support in the consultation. However, on the subject of housing need, Michael Gove has pressed on as proposed in other areas. As expected, the new MPPF did confirm that the standard method for calculating housing need will be on the face of the MPPF merely an advisory starting point for creating housing numbers for local authorities and that the standard method itself, it said, will not now be reviewed until 2025. The MPPF also gives a more explicit indication now of the types of local characteristics which may justify using alternative methods to assess housing need and the MPPF again, as expected, retains the uplift, the quite controversial uplift of 35% to the assessed housing need for the biggest towns and cities in England. You've just been talking about changes around local housing need. And one of the key areas that the government has revised the MPPF in this area is around Greenbelt. And that's obviously a hugely contentious area. So what changes exactly are there to the national policy on how councils amend greenbelt boundaries in their local plans? A greenbelt is another important area for this new MPPF. It's both an important change on the prior policy position, but there is also an important change on what was consulted upon as well. So as expected, the new MPPF makes it clear on the face of national policy that local authorities are not required to review their greenbelt boundaries during plan making. The new MPPF does not, and this is the change from what was consulted upon, explicitly link this issue to housing supply. So the government had proposed that authorities would not need to review their greenbelts, even if meeting housing need would be impossible without such a review. However, while the new text in paragraph 145 continues to make clear there's no requirement for a greenbelt boundaries to be reviewed or changed, it now does not state that this trumps meeting housing need. And in fact, it does now add a line saying, making clear that councils can still choose to review boundaries, in quotes, where exceptional circumstances justify it. One lawyer has already made the comment that actually albeit the MPPF is now saying local authorities aren't required to review greenbelt boundaries. In reality, this is simply putting something on the face of the MPPF that was really pre-existing 
policy anyway. It's just making something explicit. And and actually, this isn't necessarily going to be as huge a change as perhaps everyone was fearing compared to what was originally consulted upon. Okay, that's really interesting. You're going to talk a, a bit more later about sort of implications of some of these changes, but but just on the green belt, that to me sounds like the government's rode back on the um, what it initially proposed in the consultation. Is, is that fair to say? It does feel that on the green belt and in a number of these areas, the government has rode back slightly. It hasn't ditched its move on on the green belt. There are a couple of areas where it has ditched its proposed changes, but it hasn't done that on the green belt. But it has softened it considerably, as it has with this local character test as well. And it feels like the government is trying to walk quite a fine line of continuing to appease its critics on the back benches of the Conservative Party that want to limit development and are worried about development being uncontrolled, whilst also being nervous of appearing to be too anti-development, particularly in the kind of current political environment, I think. Right, that's really interesting. As you say, it's a really difficult balancing act for the government trying to um, appease those two or, or try to balance out those two contradictory factors. And there's also some big changes around the local plan test of soundness, isn't there? This is a big shift. The government had originally proposed quite a major change, albeit a technical one, but a substantial technical change to the way that local plans were formed. But here in the MPPF, Michael Gove has effectively ditched proposals to water down the test of soundness required for local plans to be adopted. The consultation had basically proposed that plans would no longer require to be justified and instead simply have to meet need, in quotes, so far as possible, taking into account the other policies in the MPPF. But the consultation response published made it quite clear that the majority of respondents just opposed the suggestion and and the government has, has decided to accept that and ditch the idea albeit it has said that it's still committed to streamlining the evidential requirements for plan making, as it has previously said. Another big area of change is around housing land supply. So what's been happening here? Okay, so on the issue of housing land supply, the government has proceeded pretty much as it said that it would do when it set out its proposals just over a year ago. So authorities with an up-to-date local plan will no longer need to continually show a deliverable five-year housing land supply. Only those authorities with out-of-date plans will need to demonstrate a supply. Now, this was something, as is shown by the consultation response, that was quite vehemently opposed by the development industry. But I think the strength of support for, for this from local authorities and certainly from those backbench conservatives, you know, ensured that this one survived. I think this is seen as quite a totemic issue. Alongside this, councils will also no longer have to provide, on top of the five-year housing land supply, additional buffers of 5% or 10% in a variety of uh, specific circumstances that previous policy had set out. However, there is a small change to what was proposed last year in that 
an additional buffer of 20%, which can be applied when councils fail to meet targets under the housing delivery test. That had been proposed to be abolished as well. That 20% buffer for failing to meet the housing delivery test, that was going to be abolished. That now isn't going to be abolished. That 20% buffer to the five-year housing land supply will now stand. So those that fail the housing delivery test in that particular way will have to provide an extra year's supply of housing land. Additionally, as proposed last year, local planning authorities can include historic oversupply in their five-year housing land supply calculations. The framework has been amended to include reference to, quote, circumstances in which past shortfalls or oversupply can be addressed. The department has committed to providing additional planning practice guidance to set out detail on exactly how local authorities can do this in, quote, due course. So one presumes we will hopefully see something on this later this year. And the last point on housing land supply, some authorities with emerging local plans will benefit, again, as proposed from a reduced housing land supply requirement. So those authorities with local plans submitted either for examination or having gone out for regulation 18 or 19 consultation will actually only have to demonstrate a four-year housing land supply requirement so they have some additional protection from speculative development while they're going through the local plan formation process. Okay so again some really significant changes there given the huge importance that housing land supply and the the penalties around not having a five-year supply, that's been such a central part of the um, the planning systems for over 10 years now. Indeed, uh, significant changes and going ahead almost exactly as consulted upon last year. Yeah, you can see why you know many in the development sector might be very concerned about what impact this might have on housing land supply. But at the same time, councils, many councils were breathing a bit of a sigh of relief that that sort of pressure has been taken off and obviously the ones who have up-to-date local plans will be out of the firing line so those who have emerged just to clarify those ones with who've whose emerging plans have reached an advanced stage they're going to benefit from the reduced four-year target indeed right okay um and is there anything else worth that's worth flagging up there were a few other specific changes that that weren't in the original consultation that were designed to support community-led housing. A new phrase, which has really been introduced into the MPPF, these include a new clause in paragraph 17, instructing authorities to support small sites to come forward, a new exception site policy for community-led housing, and a new definition of community-led development in the glossary of the MPPF. So kind of a new drive to support small-scale housing development under this banner of community-led development. And just another few points which which are really as per the consultation, but which I will highlight, the MPPF will now require local authorities to meet the need for retirement housing in an area. It will also encourage local authorities to use planning conditions to detail design and materials in development and construction materials that is it has a special section 
despite actually many people raising questions on this, as we'll have a, a special section on mansard roof extensions, encouraging those. It will include a, a section on agricultural land, stating that you need to consider the availability of land for food production if you're considering allocating agricultural land for housing. So I think those are really the key additional points probably worth flagging at this stage. Okay. So, I mean, lots to digest there. And um, no doubt we'll be returning to many of those topics in future episodes of Room 106 to explore in more depth. And so these changes, to be clear, these changes have all come into effect as soon as the MPPF was published, right? Indeed. The changes have come forward. From date of publication of the the MPPF, there were a number of other changes which I haven't really talked about, which were proposed in the original consultation, which actually haven't been taken forward at this stage. The government talks about those being flowed forward to potentially a later review of the MPPF or future consultations on wider issues. But in terms of the things that are actually in this MPPF, they are enacted as of December 20th when the MPPF was published. And th- those things, they're going to they're gonna look at a change in future. D- does that include things like the um, measures against developers who build out too slowly? Yeah, so that would be to do with the measures on build out of development. There were also measures around increasing the focus on social housing. There were measures to do with changing the way that the MPPF treats the consideration of embodied carbon in materials. So there's there's a number of um, areas in which the government has said it it wants to go back and look again, but wasn't really ready to make the changes at the moment. Right, Joe, before you leave us, do you have any initial thoughts on the significance of these changes and how they might play out? Well, I think they are, of course, very significant changes. I mean, I certainly think that parts of the development sector are to some extent, breathing a sigh of relief because they feel that the changes are not as bad as they thought that they could have been. The government has clearly softened its reforms in some key respects, and it would be interesting to see in the fullness of time what the response is from the likes of Theresa Villiers and Bob Seeley, the people that actually led the campaign that got Michael Gove to put forward these reforms in the first place or got the the kind of deal that presaged these reforms in the first place. However, I also think the view generally seems to be that despite the fact that the they've been softened, there's still a feeling that we're likely to have a system at the end of this that will probably deliver fewer homes it's hard to see this being a massive positive shift at the same time for the planning sector. Some of the worst problems have potentially been avoided by the changes that we've seen, but it's also, initially anyway, it seems hard to see this as a as a big positive shift forward. Joey, that's been um, a brilliant summary of the key changes, so thanks very much for that. I'm going to leave you now and turn to Alex King, our reporter.
Alex, you actually went to see Gove's speech in London at the Royal Institute of British Architects the week before Christmas, where he announced these changes to the MPPF and made a series of other key announcements, didn't you? Yes, I did. So as you say, Michael Gove gave a speech on the 19th of December and issued this statement on the same day, spelling out a lot of these changes to the planning system. So alongside the new MPPF, there was a series of big planning announcements made by Gove. Can you tell us a bit about them? Absolutely, yeah. So during the speech, Gove announced that his department had published the full results of the 2022 housing delivery test. Now, this would see 20 local authorities becoming subject to the presumption in favour of sustainable development as a consequence of poor housing delivery. Alongside that, Gove announced measures to tackle underperformance among planning authorities. So first, he announced the government would start publishing league tables, ranking planning authorities by performance. These will show the speed by which authorities respond, the level of approvals and their delivery against targets. Gove also placed two district councils in special measures, stripping them of their planning powers for having too many decisions overturned at appeal. Now, under the government special measures regime, local planning authorities can be designated as poor performers for failing to meet either speed or quality of decision-making criteria over a two-year period. Such designations permit developers to submit applications directly to the planning inspectorate. Gove announced that Conservative-controlled Fairham Borough Council in Hampshire and Chorley in Lancashire, which is Labour-led, are both now subject to the penalty. A further five councils fell below government thresholds for their quality of decision-making over the two years to March 2022, including three for major district-level decisions. However, they appear to have escaped punishment. The House delivery tests results were from 2022, weren't they? So we've been waiting a long time for those over a year and some tough sounding announcements on council planning performance. But only two have been placed in special measures, Fairham and Chorley. But you've said a number of others are actually below the threshold but escaped designation. Do we know why? I don't think we do at this stage. It wasn't really explained in the speech. We know that the two councils that were designated was as a result of the number of major district level decisions they made in the two years to March 2022 being overturned. But as far as the other five are concerned, it's it's not entirely clear at this stage. So we know they were designated in relation to the number of major decisions they made that were subsequently overturned at appeal. Well, according to their respective designation notices signed by Housing Minister Lee Rowley, the councils were designated as a result of the number of major district-level decisions they made in the two years to March 2022 that were later overturned at appeal. Of the 45 major district-level decisions Fairham made over the period, 20% were later overturned at appeal, 10% higher than the threshold. Meanwhile, 17.9% of Chorley's 39 major district-level decisions were later overturned. Okay, so they're both significantly above the government's 10% threshold, so perhaps that's why they were the ones that had been um, punished because they were so far above the um, the threshold. Okay, and did Gove's speech announce that any other planning authorities were in trouble? Yes, it did. So in his speech, Gove also threatened seven authorities with intervention as a result of their slow local plan-making progress. They will all need to provide a plan template within 12 weeks, Gove said, adding that that should they fail, he would seek further intervention to ensure that a plan was put in place. The seven were St Albans, Amber Valley, Ashfield, Medway, Uttlesford, Basildon and Castlepoint. 
Okay, so some some people have been reading our coverage about local plans being delayed and withdrawn. We'll certainly recognise a few of the names from that list, particularly Basildon, Castle Points, and Albans, where they've really struggled to pull a local plan together, and uh, in some cases have. Well, certainly, case of Basildon and Castle Point, have withdrawn them after the plans have passed examination. So perhaps it's a bit unsurprising that they've they're now facing sanctions from the government. But yes, yeah, so you've got the housing delivery test. You've got council's decision making performance and local plan performance that Gove has um, come out with some some tough action on. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that all pans out. And was anything else in the housing secretary's speech that is worth flagging up? Do you think? I think it's worth highlighting that Gove announced that the government would essentially clamp down on the use of extension of time agreements to prevent local planning authorities using them to kind of mask underperformance. So stripping these agreements out of the planning system, Gove said, and in the two years to September 2023, only 9% of local planning authorities determined 70% or more of non-major applications within the statutory eight-week period. He said the situation was even worse for major applications, where only 1% of local planning authorities had managed to get through at least 60% of planning applications within the statutory 13-week period. In the written ministerial statement published the same day, Gove stated that he intended to consult on constraining the use of extension of time agreements, including banning them for household applications, limiting when in the process they can apply, and prohibiting repeat agreements. Okay, so again, we're looking at the minister considering clamping down on, on planning council's planning performance, and interesting this whole issue of extension of time agreements. That seems to have been a growing area that the government's saying has masked some councils' poor planning performance. The use of these agreements. Okay, so uh, speaking to Joey earlier, he was talking about changes in the MPPF itself on housing land supply, and um, we've done some research on how councils are going to be affected by this. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So according to Planning's local plan tracker, the removal of the five-year housing land supply requirement, if a local planning authority has adopted a plan in less than five years, will essentially mean that 93 English councils who have an up-to-date local plan will no longer need to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply, including 19 that were previously unable to meet the requirements. The authorities range from Wellin, Hatfield Borough Council in Hertfordshire, which, according to Planning's Housing Land Supply Index, has a housing land supply of just 2.46 years and adopted its plan on the 12th of October 2023, to Darlington Borough Council in County Durham, which has a supply of 15 years and adopted its local plan on the 17th of February 2022. So quite a range of housing land supply positions among the 93 councils. As we've heard from Joey earlier, I think many of the development sector are a bit uh, unhappy about councils that have such some councils which have such low housing land supply positions escaping the penalty in this way. Keeping with the new MPPF, you also looked at how it changes neighbourhood planning, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So among the changes was a, a last minute revision to the NPPF to afford greater protection to areas with neighbourhood plans from speculative development. So paragraph 14 of the MPPF previously stated that the adverse impact of allowing development that conflicted with a neighbourhood plan was likely to outweigh the benefits provided the plan was not more than two years old. 
In line with changes proposed in a 2022 consultation, the government amended that paragraph to increase the amount of time that neighbourhood plans offer protection from two years to five years. The government also removed the requirement that the local planning authority had to have at least a three-year supply of deliverable housing sites and dropped another requirement that the LPA's housing delivery had to be at least 45% of that required over the previous three years. Okay, so there's a, there's a quite a few measures there that uh, are aiming to strengthen the position of, of neighbourhood plans in the planning system. So the last minute change that you mentioned, so what exactly was that? So the government essentially removed text from paragraph 14 of the National Planning Policy Framework stating that a neighbourhood plan would only benefit from protection against speculative housing applications if its identified housing requirement was less than five years old. So if that text had been retained, then it would have weakened the protection against uh, speculative development for neighbourhood plans, essentially. That's really interesting. So you've got a series of changes here that have where the government's aiming to strengthen neighbourhood plan protection, that change, if it had been kept in, would have, as you say, weakened it and jarred with those other measures. So perhaps the government's, there was a last minute change of heart. Is the government given any explanation as to why it's made made the change or, or published something that it then withdrew? We put it to them. We asked DLUC why the change had been made. The response we got was that it had been made in error. And I suppose that you know, they've been making lots of changes in the run-up to Christmas. You know, one or two mistakes get made in, in the process. But essentially, the explanation was that it was done in error. Thank you very much, Alex. Now I'm going to turn to Toby Porter, our online editor, who has been collecting reaction to the announcements. Toby, what's been the general flavour of responses from the sector? Well, most people in the sector believe it will water down the rules which deliver homes and lead to fewer being built. For example, Land Planning and Development Federation Chairman Paul Brocklehurst said, the result of all this will be fewer houses. They're not going to deliver more housing and they're not going to deliver more affordable housing. We're just being left in position of further planning hiatus. Paul Smith, Managing Director of Land Promoter, the Strategic Land Group, said, Making it easy for councils to plan for fewer new homes in order to protect the greenbelt or local character will reduce housing supply to the benefit of existing homeowners and the detriment of those who aspire to ownership. Quicker planning decisions for more beautiful homes won't help the housing supply crisis if there are fewer of them. Okay, so two significant voices in the development sector there, voicing concerns. And how about some of the other measures that were announced? Are there any other thoughts about the consequences of that? Again, many were worried about how that would play out. For example, Mark Buddle, Head of Development Consultancy Bidwell, said, The Housing Secretary's non-announcement demonstrates a shocking indifference towards the UK's housing emergency. Without the right type of housing, we will be unable to attract workers in areas of high productivity, which ultimately acts as a significant drag on the economy and will only further entrench stagflation. Victoria de Croz, partner and head of the planning team at law firm Forster, said, This really is all about politics. What the country needs, in particular what all those struggling to get on the housing ladder and all those on local authority housing lists need, is a government who can see beyond their short-term goal of winning the next election. 
Ian Fletcher, Policy Director of the British Property Federation, added, what is often overlooked is that if less land is allocated for, for housing, less land is likely to also be allocated for commercial developments we need to create jobs and drive the economy. These changes could have far-reaching consequences and undermine the government's growth agenda. So we've heard a few voices there from the development sector. How about local authorities? How have they... Have local authority bodies reacted so far? Well, Darren Rodwell, a housing spokesman for the Local Government Association, said, We are pleased. Government has confirmed that housing targets will become an advisory starting point, which will take into account local circumstances. In order to help rescue the speed of local plan making and housing delivery, we urge the government to bring forward consultations on a revised national planning policy framework and national development management policies which will form the backbone of a new style of plan making due in autumn 2024. Also, Mike Kiley, chairman of the board of the Planning Office Society, which represents public sector planners, said, a very unjoined up set of policies. Councils don't have to review green belts or increase densities, and there's no mechanism to meet unmet need. Yet Gove has a plan to deliver housing. My question to him was, what was his plan to meet the unmet need from councils not delivering housing numbers if they are not reviewing green belts or densifying? He didn't really answer it. There's clearly no plan. Yeah, that, that again, that, that that's interesting. So the LGA highlighting the kind of watering down of councils having to meet their local housing need figures. And obviously, you know, I guess many councils will be breathing a bit of a sigh of relief over that. But, but Mike Kiley with some more critical comments there around some of the tensions in the changes. A lot of the views I've heard have been quite critical. Any sort of positive responses? Well, not that many. And those who did express support, some measures were also critical. For example, Paul Smith, Managing Director of Land Promoter, the Strategic Land Group, said, There are certainly positives in his speech, especially around increased accountability for local authorities and reviewing the role of statutory consultees, for example. But Quicker planning decisions for more beautiful homes won't help the housing supply crisis if there are far fewer of them. Victoria Hills, Chief Executive of the RTPI, said it was encouraging to see the Minister stand up for the important roles planners play. While we appreciate the effort to deal with the application backlogs and increase Council's fee income for planning, this support, in other words, of the Planning Skills Delivery Fund, will not cover the backlog of local plans. And she added, good performance isn't just about speed. It's also about making quality decisions taken in the public interest. In his speech, when uh, he was announcing these these changes, Gove also announced a review into statutory consultees in the planning system. So what's he proposing? Gove has set up a review into the workings of the statutory consultee system because he is, and I quote, worried about delay and procrastination with statutory consulting. And he's also worried that, quoting, the performance of Natural England, the Environment Agency, Historic England and other arm's length bodies needs to improve. OK, and who's going to lead the review? Gove has appointed, quote, green hero Sam Richards to lead a, lead a rapid three-month review into the statutory consultee system. Richards is campaign director and chief executive at campaign group Britain Remade. He's also a former special advisor at number 10 where he worked on energy and the environment. 
Okay, so a, a rapid three-month review, in the words of the government. So hopefully we'll expect some results from that in the spring. So that's, uh, that's certainly one to keep an eye out for. So among the blizzard of announcements before Christmas, there was also an important consultation launched on street votes, which was a key new policy in the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act. So yeah, tell us a bit more about that and what's the new vision for street votes as set out in the consultation. Well, the Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities has now published a consultation paper on its proposed system of street votes, which sets out the new and existing regulations that any resulting development must comply with. Okay, and what are the main provisions in there? Well, development proposals that are subject to street votes by residents would need to be backed by at least 60% of voters and could, in quotes, go further than local policy allows and would be exempt from biodiversity net gain requirements, according to the government consultation. Okay, so that 60% benchmark is interesting because uh, I guess at the moment with, with na- neighbourhood plans, which is similar, similarly has to be passed by a local ballot, but it's it's a 50% benchmark. So it's interesting the government is sort of has raised the threshold here, I guess then perhaps conscious of um, not wishing to antagonise people who might be opposed to uh, to new development in their streets. Finally, Toby, you're going to bring our listeners up to date with some of the other non-NPPF key news stories that broke over the Christmas period, aren't you? I am, yeah. First, some 180 local planning authorities have received grants of up to 100,000 or even above that from round one of the Planning Skills Delivery Fund to cut their application backlogs and boost their planning department skills. Secondly, some 60 local planning authorities have incorporated a biodiversity net gain requirement of at least 10% into their adopted or emerging local plans in the last two years, a report from planning sister website DCP has found, of which seven require a gain of more than 10%. Some more news. Nicholas Boyce-Smith, chair of the advisory board for the government's Office for Place, and Helen Fedipe, a consultant who founded the Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Planners Network, have been awarded New Year's honours for their services to planning. Also, Housing Minister Lee Rowley has ordered West Berkshire Council not to withdraw its emerging local plan from examination, pointing out that it has been 11 years since it last adopted a development strategy in the third such government intervention in three months. Also, Michael Gove has written to a London Mayor Sadiq Khan to tell him he's appointed a panel to review the capital's overarching spatial strategy. In quotes, to consider the aspects of your London plan, which could be preventing thousands of homes being brought forward. Also, the government has published revised guidance on planning for travellers' sites, which reverts to defining travellers as all those of travelling background, not just those who are currently travelling. And in other news, Michael Gove has said in a written statement that the government intends to set up a development corporation to steer the development of an urban quarter providing homes for thousands in Cambridge over the next two decades. And finally, councillors at Wrexham County Borough Council have at last voted to adopt its new local plan despite strong opposition to the strategy after a High Court judge warned that they could be jailed if they reject it for a third time. Thanks, Toby. That's a great summary of all the uh, non-NPPF news. Of course, 
More details of all those stories, as well as our MPPF coverage, can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Well, that's a very busy month summarised, and I am very glad to be out of there. We'll be back with a bonus edition next week. In the meantime, if you aren't a Room 106 subscriber already, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. If you haven't already, don't forget to enter our planning awards and give yourself and your team the opportunity to get the recognition that your work deserves. The deadline for entries is 29th of February. Our thanks to producer Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening. See you next week.